Hello, and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson, and of course, with me as always is Eric Armstrong. Hey, Eric. Hi there, how are you? I'm so totally groovy. I Actually, I have a bit of a cold, but other than that, I'm doing super swell. Mm, well, tis, tis a good time of year. It is. The gathering of students produces uh, a nice amalgam of horrifying germs. <laughs> and it's not like we can avoid contact in the voice biz. So. Indeed. In their faces, that's what we're Oh, what a segue. That was pure genius. We are, in fact, talking about the face diphthong today. We're going to be in your face. Uh, there's a new and amazing thing about face. Uh, <gasps> new and amazing? It is, uh, because this is the first diphthong that we have dealt with. Oh, oh, hang on. That's a weird word. Diff, diphthong. Isn't it a diphthong, Phil? Ah, that's excellent. You do such a good job of acting like you're coming up with a question that you don't already know the answer to. So, yes, it is a diphthongos. Oh. Now, here's something You're showing actually, your Greek roots. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, we have a couple of uh, Greek words for sound, phone, like phonetics, mm. phonos, I think that is, and thong, uh, which is the, essentially the sound for vowel, the word for a vowel. Now, I was told recently that it was actually originally pronounced thong with a voiced th. Uh, and, but a voiceless f. Yes. Uh, I'm not, in fact, while we continue to talk, I'm going to grab my little Greek dictionary off the shelf, and I'm going to look that up while we continue to talk. But why don't you explain what a diphthong is? So a diphthong is a, a vowel sound in English that has a, a, a slide, a glide, from one initial starting place to a second ending place. And there, these can be broken into two kinds of sounds. We have a falling diphthong. Uh, face is one of those. So we start on a principal element and we fall off. We spend less time on the second element. Um, it is, is not as key to the, the sound. The other kind, a rising diphthong, is one that starts with a lighter element and we pull into the, the most significant part of the, the vowel combo. I like to kind of thinking of them like, uh, do you remember in math the idea of vectors? Um, I don't really remember anything from math, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> I had to stop giving my daughter help. Vectors are lines that go from one point that we used to represent by an XY combination uh, and to go to another. And the, uh, we, we used to describe the vector by having one uh, point going to the other point and those would be the uh, X, X comma Y would go to X prime Y prime. Uh, and I think of, of diphthongs in a, in a way like that, sort of like an arrow going from this principal nucleus to an area where it falls off to. That's a falling diphthong, a rising diphthong, starting from a, a light place and, f and, and rising in, in terms of importance to the second point. Now, the problem with falling and rising is that we get an implication of height. 
And the problem is we talk about vowel height, uh, mm-hmm. referring to the, the, the vowel space within one's mouth, where your tongue is referenced to the roof of your mouth. So uh, we might have a diphthong A, where the tongue is rising in the mouth, um, but that's still a falling diphthong. Yeah, the first because you're is more falling important. off of your full energetic execution of the nucleus of the diphthong. Uh, into something more relaxed and less prominent. Right. In English, most of our our diphthongs are falling. Um, the the there are examples where you might have a a monophthong, a pure vowel, if you will, uh, in a word like free, where you might glide into that. So you might say free, free, and so uh, that would be a rising diphthong. Because it begins in the relaxed place and gets put together into the focused, energetic, nuclear part of the sound. Yes, well said. And then uh, another example, sometimes people say that the the U glide, where you start on the semi-vowel Y and head to U, particularly within the context of a word like music, that it starts closer to an I-like vowel and falling onto the U, music. So that would be, again, a rising uh, diphthong that the second element is more well, uh, the focal point. Then let me take this opportunity to pretend I don't know the answer to this question I'm about to ask. Wouldn't I say in music that I'm doing a m sound followed by a y uh, palatal approximant and then moving into the u? So am I really doing a diphthong there or am I doing a consonant vowel sequence? Some people will say, yes, you are, and other people will say, no, you're not. Um, that uh, it's kind of how you slice your apples. It's uh, different from different sides of the street. Um, I think people will argue that the yod is part of the vowel, partly to do with uh, the kinds of environments that it can happen in. Um, mm-hmm. And others will, will say that, uh, that uh, it's, it's part of the consonant. But uh, I, I tend to put it in the vowel uh, sphere rather than the consonant sphere. Uh, I, I assume you do that too, Phil, do you not? Yeah, y- yes. I, well, no, my, my casual habit is to transcribe, and we'll save our transcription nerdishness for a little while, to transcribe in the w- word like music, uh, a bilabial nasal, followed by a consonant palatal approximant, before moving into the vowel u, so I, you think of that yod as being part of the. So there, there are m words, and followed by u, as opposed to uh, there is m followed by. Oh no, no, the I segment certainly do. U. Conceptually, and this fits with the history of language development. Conceptually, that's a y beginning the vowel. It's part of that unit. But I think of it still as a consonant and not as uh, a rising diphthong. Mm. I wouldn't transcribe it with an i or an e. I would transcribe it with a y. And is that a phonological choice or a phonetic choice? I think it's a phonological choice because as you and I were chatting about before we started our recorders, it is possible to fall down the rabbit hole of the fractal geometry of transcribing every frickin' detail. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you said before that uh, the passage of a diphthong is like a vector. We could plot it like a parabola sometimes. That is to say, that I'm not simply going from a to e. I might be going a. I'm passing through on some sweeping arc, perhaps a lot of varieties. So in if I consider music as m, y, uh, an approximate followed by u, there's a place between the y and the u where I'm probably going through i. So if I mapped out every single snapshot along the way, if I did my transcription at a very high bit depth, then I would end up with ridiculous and unreadable transcriptions. Well, I, I guess the 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 to play the other side of the the desk, the uh, play the devil's advocate, if you will, um, that if you look at an acoustic, uh, you know, uh, spectrogram, in if you compare a word like uh, you to a word like music, the uh, format for that segment, that where the where the yod of your transcription falls, is closer to an i vowel than it is to a yod. It isn't as tight as you might think it is. So um, that's the argument for using that transcription. And I think Um, by introspection, we might feel that we say you, that we're we're entering into that approximate zone of turbulence, whereas on music, we don't manage to get our articulators close enough to make that happen. Right. So phonologically, it's part of the same group that you'd have in you and useful and usually, where it, we really need that consonantal energy burst to kind of initiate the syllable, whereas when it fits within the context of a syllable that's begin by, begun by another consonant, we don't need to go quite as far. We don't need to be quite as aggressive. Anyway, this rabbit hole about you... Uh, is really was, about diphthongs. It's about diphthongs. By the and way, so, the Greek dictionary tells me I'm really bad at, at... I didn't know that phi or phi was so far back in the Greek alphabet. I kind of thought it was earlier, so I've been searching. Uh, so, phthogos... Yeah, uh, I, it looks actually like there are two g sounds, not an ng, but... And it is the voice of men, also the cry of animals, generally a sound. But it looks like a theta. Now, there may be rules of Greek pronunciation that make that voiced, uh, but the person who told me that, I think, might listen to this show, and that Mm. person might send me an email explaining how I got it wrong. So I look forward to that. Uh, So we have diphthongs. Uh, diphthongs can be rising or falling. That is to say, they can go from a state of relaxation and rise to their full energy. We've thrown around the term nucleus as well. Uh, the nucleus is the main part of the diphthong. Or they can fall away from that nuclear fullness into a more relaxed uh, tail. What might define diphthong as opposed to a sequence of vowels, however, is the perceptual sense that it's one syllable. Right. So, when I say face, I'm not saying feis. I may have intruded a glottal stop in there. Feis. 
face. Just look at that face. So what the, the distinction there is about timing, it's about energy, uh, and it is to some degree about length and tenseness of the second element. Mm -hmm. I very often will physicalize with gestures. I dance my way through phonetics class usually. And so you can imagine a strong gesture and then sort of relaxed falling away. And that collapse, I guess you could say, is for me what leads to the perception of a single syllable. Face. Mm. That there's something about that second part not having its own energy that makes me perceive it as one syllable. Hmm. But that's an interesting metaphor for it. I, I don't perceive it as having less energy. I just perceive it having less time. Well, so that's that's my perception of it. No, I think that that's um, right. I think that when we withdraw our focus from a word, we uh, we do tend to move it in English towards the center of the mouth, uh, but we also spend less time with it. Mm -hmm. So let's deal with length here for a minute in let's deal with it for a moment in monophthongal face. We'll get back later to the realizations of these sounds, but we could imagine the word face being pronounced with that a element which is higher than e and lower than e. So we've met those vowels in the dress lexical set and e in the fleece lexical set. So we could say so it's intermediate. We're in a sound in between those, yeah. right? And so, a, a, and we talked about this a bit in the dress episode, that you could imagine dress, dress, a tighter, higher version of that. So let's take that in the word face. The length of that is part of its defining characteristic in a way. Mm. Uh, if I said and some people you, will call it a long vowel. Exactly. If I said fess, uh, and even if I realized the vowel of that tensor, fess, 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 I, I have to lengthen it to give you the perception of it being the front part of my head, my face. So there's, there's inherent in our conception of that diphthong, that phoneme face, is the idea that it's somewhat longer. And you could say that the diphthongal characteristic, the shift in vowel shape, is a result of its having been lengthened. And we've talked about that before, that when we draw out some sounds, they don't necessarily always stay in the same shape throughout. They sometimes shift and and begin to break. Now, breaking is the opposite of making a diphthong. And that is taking something that was a monophthong and breaking it into two pieces. And we've talked about that in Kiat and even in Dreas, that there is a possibility for those short vowels to be drawn out and broken into two components. But in that case, we really perceive it as two syllables. Mm -hmm. In a diphthong, we're still perceiving it as one one syllable and one somewhat longer syllable. Is that? Do you concur? I think I do. I think I do. I see the concerned um, look on your face, and I, I want to get that footnote. Oh, I, I, I think the concern is because I, I know we need to transition to talk to mention at very least the idea of a triphthong. I um, and uh, um, 
but when I'm thinking of the a um, compared to a, I uh, if I took a word like waste and I compared it with west, mm -hmm. and then I said waste with without a diphthong quality, pure waste and west, I think west would be shorter. Um, that it to to denote waste, the you know um, the the person from the west had a very slim waist. I would, I would yes. be inclined to lengthen waist because the face a little bit longer than west contains within it the idea of length. Diphthong or yes. monophthong, it's long. Exactly, uh, um, and I guess that you know we we do talk about uh, checked and free yeah. vowels, and uh, the something about the face lexical set is that we can have words like pay. I need to pay for that, whereas a, a vowel like e, like we have in the dress lexical set, set um, we we can't say pe unless we're cutting ourselves well, off. Well, then let me give you three words: s p a y, s p a t e, s p a i n. S p a y, spay, like a. What you do with your you should cat. do with your cat and dog, really, everyone. Okay. Public service announcement. Spay your pet. <laughs> so that that's the first one, spay. And then the second was spate? Yes. And what was the third one? I, I'm sorry, I missed the... Spain. Right. So spay, Spain, spate. So they're getting shorter, aren't they? Yeah, I think Spain and spay are in a similar territory of length. And you, you could conceive of them, one or the other of them being slightly longer or shorter. They don't spay their pets in Spain. In Spain, they don't spay their pets. So prominence in the utterance might affect length as well. But spate, dang, that's short. But so if we put them in a, uh, the similar sentence and we said, Spain is a good word, spay is a good word, spate is a good word. So we use them yes. all the same and then measured them. I think you would find that the one that uh, was completely free. Spay would be the longest. I, Spain would be in the middle, and spate would be. That's shortest. my intuition and my research. That's we both know from yes. having looked at this yes. stuff that that's the way it usually happens. But that would be such an interesting experiment to to run. And the way you've proposed it, that model where the token, the thing being observed, is being put in the same sentence, is exactly the right way to do it because it eliminates, it controls for the problem of prominence of the word. Yes, the only advice I would give is to put a fourth token on the end that's a throwaway because the last sentence that you would do in a, in a series of reading like that would get less prominence than it deserved. And then um, we could go and simply measure the length of time. We could look at it on the screen and say that was so many milliseconds and that one was longer. And then the Midwestern American English speaker, the Canadian Midland speaker, and we could average all of those variations on accent. Uh, we could average age, we could average all those things, and I still think that the result would be length conditioned by following consonant. Yes. And that's what the rules of vowel length really respond to, what they describe, is the fact that when we check a vowel, especially when we check it with an unvoiced plosive, that shortens the vowel. Yes, it 
sure does. So, so uh, does is that going to change our diphthong? I think so. Let's talk about intra-speaker variation. That is to say, within my own speech, I vary the length based on the factors that we've just talked about. Do I change the realization of the diphthong, the shape my mouth makes? Does quality change as a function of quantity? Does mouth shape change with length within a speaker? <laughs> Having stated it, I don't know if I have an opinion. I do think that I make more of a monothong when I shorten it. I, I would assume that you would. Um, and and it, most of it has to do with how much time your yeah. articulators have to get from point A to point B. If, uh, if we have a word like uh, pate, uh, mm -hmm. we, to get that A diphthong in before we chop it off with our T, um, you, you might take a shortcut uh, comparing pain with pate. Yes, yeah, so you'd have uh, a shorter vector. A shorter vector, you might take a shortcut. Um, that a uh, there's going to be a rising of the front of my tongue, the front edge of my tongue behind my lower front teeth to make the a diphthong, but I'm going to have that flick of the tongue to make the t, and yeah. that may cut the corner and lead me to to limit the amount of heading off the nucleus towards that tail of the there's an, sound. Another example that uh, Wells gives in Accents of English which is when you're following the unchecked vowel with another syllable beginning with a vowel, and he uses the word paying. Hmm. And, and that one kind of makes some sense, that if I'm using the same sounds, a, e, that I would use in the diphthong, but I'm using them as two separate syllables, paying, it would be kind of weird to do paying it kind of divides the syllable boundary in a in a weird way that doesn't make sense. Well, it I, I often think that people have a dictionary form in their head where the syllable boundary is very acute. And so the the second element of the diphthong becomes a yod, paying. Um, yeah. And so we're not getting diphthong paying, we're getting paying. Um, and right. that makes a very acute syllable boundary. They make a boundary. fantastic orange chicken. <laughs> Sorry. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. I think we've explained diphthongs. Uh, let me take a little step into triphthongs. Okay. We could imagine that our vector, as I said before, uh, is parabolic or hyperbolic, I suppose, uh, and that we go through three spots, but that we still perceive it as one phoneme. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I might say, ir, fire. I still think that it's fire. If I'm not Jim Morrison singing, come on baby, like my fire, and you talked about that with pei ying as well, then it's still one syllable. If I was writing verse, I, although I, I do think there are some places where Shakespeare takes a triphthong and does two syllables with it. Uh, and that it scans that way. But a fire is not a fire unless it is, which is a 
stupid sentence, uh, <laughs> makes fire into one syllable. And that doesn't feel like breaking rules to an English speaker. Hmm. But for many people, I would argue most people, their dictionary form for fire in their head is two syllables. Fire. And to make a triphthong, generally what we're doing is taking a diphthong plus uh, usually an er ending and Which we can save them, for our, our episode. <laughs> schmooshing them into a single syllable entity and calling it a triphthong. Yes. Right. And we can come back to triphthongs later. Yes, we can. But that's that's triphthong. Done. So, face, history of face. History of face. I have, as I jokingly said to you before, I can read to you from the scriptures, uh, that is, J.C. Wells' Accents of English. Uh, and first of all, this, he does these sort of uh, definitions uh, at the beginning of each description of a lexical set, and I think it's worth saying it out in this sort of... He, crafts his sentences very carefully, and I like that. So here we go, the definition of face. The standard lexical set face is defined as comprising those words whose citation form in RP and Gen Am has the stressed vowel A, which by the way, when he transcribes it, he does not symbolically note in any way that it's a diphthong, which we'll get to later. He just has an mm. e, so A symbol followed by an I symbol. Uh, he does have it between two slashes, which means it's a phonemic representation. The two accents agree substantially in the lexical incidence of this vowel. Phonetically, A is a front, narrow, closing diphthong. Mm -hmm. uh, listeners take note of my furrowed brow. Furrowed brow. Uh, or, less commonly, a, ha a front, half-close monophthong. I honestly, I'm going to bounce this to you because I have no idea what a front, narrow, closing diphthong is. What is the so, narrow in that? N I think it refers to uh, close-mid narrowing towards close. That makes perfect uh, sense. Right, and half-close is what he is, is slang for close-mid. So, he's saying what we've just said, of course, which is it's either... A or A. Terrific. I move on now to history. This is uh, from a later chapter in the Holy Book. Nowadays, <laughs> pairs such as M-A-N-E, main, and M-A-I-N, main, toe, T-O-E, and toe, T-O-W, are homophones, or they're homophones, depending on how you'd like to pronounce that word, in most accents. Previously, it was not so. A distinction in pronunciation existed up to the 17th century when it disappeared in polite usage through operation of the process we refer to as the long mid-mergers. By this sound change, the originally monothongal vowels of man and to fell together with the diphthongs of main. Sorry, the first monothong was uh, man and to fell together with the diphthongs mine and to. In various local accents, these mergers are not yet complete. So, so I think we need to explain what those spellings were because your lovely pronunciations of them were beautiful, but we didn't have the texts in front right, of right, us. Right, right, right. So, so let, let's focus on main and main, right? 
Yes. Which spelling was the man? That's the and which was the mine? That's the M A N E is man. And you and I had a brief conversation earlier about whether it's man or mana. Uh, and I got confused about some facts of Middle English grammar that are still eluding me. But I think we can say that the vowel was clearly pronounced as ah. And there's a whole set of words in which that a represented ah. And I think it was a long... That is to say, its duration was long. Right. Uh, so it contrasted with the short A. So a word like man contrasted with man. So uh, the man of hair on the man. Uh, so they had the same yeah. vowel quality. The man with the mane of hair. Uh, the difference between mane and man was essentially length. Yes. So what was the nam of that man? Right. Great. So that category of monophthongal long ah, or ah, really, went through this process of, uh, first of all, raising, and uh, you mentioned this Wikipedia page. I really hate to refer to Wikipedia, and yet I do it all the time. And their phonetics and language history stuff is often very, very good. So it's the Wikipedia page for the Great Vowel Shift, which has mm. this lovely graph. I encourage you to pause your iPod and navigate to wikipedia.org slash wiki slash great underscore vowel underscore shift and uh, play along at home. So for those of you who are not able to play along at home, let's just give you a basic idea of what we're talking about. It's a chart that uh, on the vertical axis, we have years in centuries, starting in 1400 and going up about an inch at a time for uh, a century. So we've got 1400, 1500, 1600, all the way up to the year 2000. And on the x-axis, we have a series of words. They are not... Um, John Wells lexical set words, but they are words that are standing in for certain groups of words. Um, and so for the face lexical set, what eventually evolved into the face lexical set, they have the word nam or for name and the word die for day. Uh, so name and day ultimately merged to make what became face. Um, if we start at uh, the 1400 slot, uh, many people, I was not included in this, but many people in their uh, educations were asked to memorize the beginning of the Canterbury Tales in Old English. Juan that April. And so April has that long ah. And you know that the current word, April, has a diphthong. So 1400 I always think of as Chaucer and then as we get close to 1600 we're in Shakespeare. Yes. So let me go through the pronunciations of Nam and I, I, I'm tending to make it further back. It really is a front vowel. I should be careful about that. And it's always long in this lexical set. So 1400 Nam. 1500 Nam. 
I could have raised that more. 1600 nam. Uh, 1650 seems to be the same. I don't understand why they put that in there. I think just to show a parallel with uh, the what's happening on time. Ah, I see, because that's where some of the money of uh, the Great Vowel Shift is occurring. Mm -hmm. Great. So then 1700, they skip 1750, name, that is monophthongal, long, but high. And then eight, by 1850, name, as a diphthong. If I go over to Dai, which is transcribed here with a Yod, with a J, uh, which seems to me to indicate that they're saying that it actually comes, there's closer contact. Dai. Because they're using other diphthongs, that's, they're using it only in this circumstance. So we have Dai, then in 1500, Dai, then in 1550, day, then in 1600 it joins with name and day. It continues there as day, it follows the same path towards day, then day. So by 1600, this separated category of words had joined together into the category that we see as face. There was some other thing I wanted to say about Oh, yes, I just wanted to refer to early modern English pronunciation. Mm. There's been a lot of work on that. And uh, the passage that's easy to find that uh, David Crystal has recorded is the beginning of two of uh, Romeo and Juliet. Two households, both alike in dignity, which I always use as the A shift. But then it's in fair Verona, where we lay our sane. So le and sen, I think, fall into these same categories, and they're being realized as a long, high, e, le, our sen. Our sen, I think. Okay, so, they've merged. So we don't need to care about that. They've merged already. Uh, he does say in the book that, in some accents, that merger is not complete. I just couldn't tell you what those accents are, I'm afraid. Hmm. Uh, we do certainly hear realizations that sound very similar uh, and that have different diphthongal or monophthongal characters. Uh, we've talked about this maybe a little bit in dress and fleece, in fleece, because certainly there are words where the A sound merged with E. Right. Uh, but I can't I don't know what the words are between name and day that any accent would separate. Mm, no, I yeah. can't think of any examples like that. But, but maybe someone who's a listener out there knows. Yes. And they would email us Sweet. at glossonomia at gmail.com. Perfect. All right, so now are we ready to talk about realizations? We could. Wow. What a big, big world this is. Mm-hmm. The main distinction in realization is the distinction between the monophthongal and the diphthongal form. Right. Some folks say face, or some version of that where it's monophthongal, and some do face. You know, I just had a thought. I, I, it's not coming to mind what accent it is, but I suspect that the 
groups that split name and day would have a for one and a for the other. That sure makes sense. I have the same intuition, but I have no evidence. Okay, that, that just a. I think that's thought. probably right. And so, some intrepid listener who wants to research that and tell us how little we know, that would be an ideal opportunity. Absolutely. So, uh, monophthong and diphthong, face and face. Uh, there's. Let's talk about just keeping that same arrangement of a falling diphthong and changing the realization of the nucleus or the second tone. What do you call the second part? I just say the second element of the diphthong. But if nucleus has a name, is there a name for the other part? Tail? Yeah, that's pretty. So, I could open my mouth more, either with my tongue or my jaw, and make a more open face. And uh, I'll, I'll call out uh, Paul Meyer here, if only to invite him to explain himself. On his website, he makes a distinction between the RP and the general American realization of the face diphthong, in which he describes the RP realization uh, as Oh, you know, we ought to take a moment after I've finished this blather to talk about phonetics and the mm. way we transcribe it. Okay. But he says the RP version is A, that is to say, A is the first element, and the American version starts with the E of dress, face. Well, I, I don't pretend to speak for Paul, but I was involved in making those charts with Paul. I did the design of the charts, and he and I actually talked about this. Excellent. So, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of what we chose to put for those RP and Genam realizations was based upon our own feelings about the subtle differences between one and the other. Um, and... Uh, we both agreed that RP is transitioning in its realization of face and that there are many contemporary RP speakers whose face is quite open, A, so uh, that it would start with uh, an epsilon, if you will, in terms of transcription. Uh, but a traditional RP would start with the lowercase e, symbol A. Um, and uh, Paul felt fairly strongly that um, the realization of face in the general American that he encountered on a daily basis was more open than the sound that he was using and teaching as part of his RP. So it was kind of a comparative um, Would you point say of view. that that was associated with what we talked about in terms of dress, the notion that RP dress and transcription practice uses that E, dress is tighter for an RP speaker and more open for an American speaker, and that we could imagine that face might follow the same model. So we get dress, face, and dress, face. I'm overshooting that. <laughs> um, I, I think there's some logic to that, that uh, if dress is moving up in the vowel space, then face needs to move closer to fleece in order that uh, we have greater sort of even distribution. Um, that we, we certainly know from chain shifts that as vowels kind of impinge on other vowel or lexical set 
territory. There's a bit of a turf war, and people tend to, you know, they all moved over and one fell out. Um, there's a, there's a, a, you know, making sure that we're not too tight. And, uh, you know, if they get too tight, we get a merger. And uh, that's certainly not happening. Um, so I think that was the logic of, of differentiating the two. The question is, at what point do you go to another symbol? Yeah. Um, and so perhaps it's a good point to talk about uh, the transcription. Let me just say one more thing before we go into sure. transcription. That there's something at work here which is about marketness. Mm. Uh, that what does that mean to you, marketness? That when something is noticed, we can perceive it, then it is marked. If it's neutral for us and we don't pay any attention to it, then it's unmarked. And so markedness in, in sound and in perception is about the thing that we notice. And I would suggest that when the Canadian and the Brit were sitting around talking about American faces, uh, they were, you all, were drawn to the difference. Whereas for me, my American face, that's the title of my autobiography, My American Face, uh, is... I would be reluctant, skeptical, to suggest that it's that far away. So, to me, the American pronunciation is unmarked, therefore unremarkable, therefore the same. So it may be that I'm... We could ascribe uh, some sort of perceptual deficit to either one of us. Either I'm not noticing it because it's in my backyard, or you're over-noticing it because it's different. Right. And I suspect that if we compare face-to-face, -face, okay, uh, RP to Gen M, yeah. one might mark more difference. If we compare face-to-dress, we, uh, in, in uh, both of, they're both different. They're both contrastive. The, yeah. the first element is different. So in the tradition of, say, Wells and Daniel Jones, of using the lowercase e to represent both the beginning of face and the symbol to represent dress, there is somehow a parallel to Paul choosing to use epsilon yeah. for dress and epsilon for the beginning of face. And yes. that neither is the same in either instance um, and that it's just a short form to use one symbol in the diphthong form in either which either side of the yes. pond we're thinking about. Ne ne in, in both cases where the same symbol is used in diphthong and for the, the lax vowel, that the, the difference is ultimately um, in contrasting the two faces, and that's the point of the, the, the usage. And I would say that this is not a salient distinction between RP and... It's one of the places where, as J.C. Wells says, RP and Gen M. General American agree, agree substantially. And so I would say that's bringing out the heavy artillery to destroy a gnat. Right. Uh, that, and it also does, I'm afraid, rankle my national pride. <laughs> I, I, I have to confess that a little bit of my response is, you think I say what? Uh, and and I recognize that that's an emotional response and not an intellectual response. Right. And the other thing is that Paul is based at uh, uh, in Kansas. Kansas Kansas City, and uh, he his spouse is uh, you know 
an, an American with a certain kind of U.S. accent. Uh, so he's hearing certain kind of American all the time, and perhaps yeah. that also colors his perception of it. Um, and uh, and I I don't like conflict, so. Uh, yes, I agree with you on that. All right, let's leave some of the subtle shadings of varying realization for a moment and get back to the symbols which we ignored before. Yes. Uh, as we said with dress, there is a little bit of confusion in RP transcription practice using the lowercase e to describe a sound that, while tenser than the American version of dress, is not the same as face. Right. And if we, uh, so if we compare the A sound that used in other languages, particularly Romance languages, the sound that's associated typically with the close mid vowel is, uh, is much more A, a brighter sound. Yeah, um, tensor. Tensor. And so we expect, uh, 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 if we associate that sound on kind of a, well... A big IPA sound in the sky. I mean, that, that was something that uh, John Wells, in his blog this week, he was talking about different realizations of vowels uh, and the use of the IPA to represent different things. And uh, one of the things he said was, there's no IPA in the sky, no yeah. set form that represents, that symbol is this acoustic thing. And I think that, that um, the people in the voice and speech industry, you and I, that, that sometimes gets us down a little bit. We want there to be uh, an IPA in the yeah. sky, in a way. And um, the, the fact of the matter is that um, most of those people publishing a, around these things use the IPA in a flexible way. And so exactly. uh, we have to keep remembering that. Uh, because our goal in phonetic transcription and phonetic discussion is a very, very deep and detailed understanding of the nuances of a muscular, a performed activity, mm -hmm. we should be forgiven for being a little fussy. Yes, I think and so. And for hoping for a very subtle, solid set of markers, an, an IPA in the sky. But we do have to recognize that it's being used artistically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, not it's not fully scientific. There's an art to phonetics. And surely if we don't get that, <laughs> then we're in trouble. So, to the symbols. To the symbols, Robin. Lowercase e for the pure vowel a, which is higher. Uh, then an epsilon, which is a backwards three or uh, a cursive capital E. Yeah, really, epsilon, it's a, the Greek letter E. Mm -hmm. It's the same height as the lowercase e. Uh, it is... I think we've killed it. We've, we, we've covered it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> eh. uh, we did all that on the dress. Uh, so then, if we were to transcribe what Wells is referring to as the general American RP A sound... We would then move from that higher one, the lowercase e, to a lowercase capital I, which we talked about in the kit episode. Right. So, e, e is the sequence. But the sequence as a diphthong is a. 
the tail part, which is realized as an i, is much, much more relaxed, short, and smoothly connected to the nucleus right. of the diphthong. And if you were to hold a international phonetic alphabet chart in your hand, which I happen to have right here, you would <laughs> notice that the a symbol is very close to the i. That in terms oh, yeah. of the shift in the vowel space, it's tiny, the action of the tongue. It really isn't moving a long way to move from a to i, a, a, that the, the smallest shift of the tongue creates a, an acoustic difference. Bingo, we're in a diphthong. And it's a shift happening in a pretty uh, carefully mapped out part of our perceptual world. Yes. So we really hear the difference between a and i. Now, uh, you've, we've both looked at these charts where the tense vowels are arrayed around the outside and the lax vowels are on the inside. They're not far off of their positions on the chart that you have in front of you, but there's a, a, an argument being made with that chart that says that there's more of a difference than location between a and i, that i is in its nature relaxed, and that we can perceive that relaxation. So the journey from a to i is one of a short tongue movement, but a, a release of muscular energy as well. Uh, which is why, before we started, I made the audacious and probably wrong suggestion that these are similar to centering diphthongs. We haven't talked about those, we won't talk about them, but there's a relaxation towards the center of the vowel chart. Now, if you look at the chart, you can see that it is higher in tongue position, and as you say, very close to A. It feels like a relaxation to me, uh, and that's why I'm trying to sell the notion that it is not only a more centered vowel, it's also a more relaxed vowel. Hmm. That in the process of moving from a to i, we're relaxing, we're collapsing a little bit. I might be full of it. That has been established in the past. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good cricket. I, I worked on that. I, I did that in a show, an outdoor show once, to great effect. So, our diphthong, as I would usually write it, is lowercase e, lowercase capital, uh, rather, yeah, small capital I. Uh, they call that lowercase as well. Well, the problem is that lowercase i is the thing with the dot on the top, right? So small cap to... is a short form for small capital I. So in that sequence, as, as J.C. Wells uses in his book, and as most people on his blog use, there is no symbolic indication that we've got a diphthong. So there is there is uh, uh, several traditions around this, and yeah. I think uh, um, perhaps the more well-known tradition in North America is to add a diacritic mark above the tail, the above the small cap I, to 
and sort of the combination of the two symbols, the second one having a, a, a diacritic mark above it, a, a brev symbol, sort of a, a, a bottom half of a circle, a half ring uh, above and it. And if you do scansion, you're familiar with that yes. unstressed mark. Unstressed mark, that brev. But it um, specifically means short. It means short. And so if we're thinking of the diphthong as being uh, from the nucleus, it's longer, and the tail, it's shorter, that uh, that's what the brev is indicating. Um, and uh, that that's a convention. There is a whole convention in phonology of not bothering to mark the second element of the diphthong, because when uh, vowel symbols appear in pairs, we assume they're diphthongs, unless you mark a syllable break between them with a period. Which would be a period. Which would be a period. So, uh, uh, because there's, uh, it's so common to have pairs of vowels in diphthongs, that you save yourself a whole bunch of marks and strokes by assuming it's a diphthong if you have these um, conditions. And that's a, I guess you could call it a conservative approach. It's a... Less is more. Less is more. Why bother to indicate something that is implied already? Yeah. And, and that's one way in which modern phonetic practice differs from the phonetic transcription practice of Edith Skinner, which was very much about putting all the symbols on. There was a, a lot of attention paid to always marking those things that we might be able to assume. Right. So, but, for instance, you know, an aspiration I, mark on a exactly. PT and K. But you know what? I always write, and I take points off for not including the brev mark. However, I am... You've come up with something else, haven't you? I, I am on the threshold of changing everything I do. And that is really because I've seen more and more people who bother, if they don't use this practice of simply putting the two symbols there, if they're trying to be precise about the nature of the diphthong, they use another symbol underneath the second element instead of the brev marker. So the brev marker is a scoop above the second element. The non, the syllabic marker, uh, I, I should say that again, the dot is a non-syllabic marker between the two syllables, between the two sounds that make two syllables. A syllable break. A syllable break, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. The, the syllabic marker is an upside-down brev underneath the second element. A little round convexity pointing towards the symbol. Mm, and that depends says, what you think of as pointing, but it's basically a mirror <laughs> image of the brev. If you imagined yeah. a mirror cutting horizontally across the symbol, it's reflected exactly. below it so that uh, it's, a, it's sort of the arising sun rising beneath the And symbol. I haven't ever seen both symbols used, both a brev and a syllabic mark, or, or rather a non-syllabic mark. Although it does make sense, if we want to say that the second, second element is smoothly connected as part of the diphthong and shorter than the first element, then theoretically we should use both. But it sort of goes without saying that if it's yeah. non-syllabic, then it's likely to be shorter than the nucleus. Um, so, so kind of gilding the lily with both. My next year's class, I'm going to teach not the brev, I'm going to teach both, I'm going to teach the whole thing. But I'm going to say that our practice is to put the non-syllabic mark rather than the brev. Hmm. 
even though it's probably shorter. And I was driven to this because my, I have my students do an assignment where they do obsessive, ridiculously detailed transcription. And I believe the diphthong was air. And the second element was really long, partially because of the roticity. Square. But it still sounded like a diphthong. It was perceivable as one unit. But the second element was long at least as long as the first element. So the student who was on board with the neurotic task of being overly detailed said, I should use a non-syllabic mark there, but not use a brev, because I want to indicate that the second element, while, while part of the syllable, is just as long. And I had to concede. I couldn't argue my way out of that. And that made me think, I'm going to have to concede on this whole point. There seems to be a rising tide of using the non-syllabic mark to indicate diphthongs. What's your view? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, apart from seeing your transcriptions with the use of the non-syllabic, I haven't been seeing it as much as you seem to have been. Um, have you're seeing it in, in phonetic journals and the like. Yeah. Also, and I know this isn't a good resource, it's more and more common on the Wikipedia phonetic sentence. Mm, interesting. So, you know, uh, in a way, there are two different ways of representing something that happens naturally with speech. Exactly. Uh, one is to focus on the syllabic nature of the, the, the sounds when uh, we're being reminded that this second symbol is representative of something that is non-syllabic. And in the other, we're saying this is less important because it's shorter, both of which are happening because of the nature of the utterance. Um, and you you would be right to say that both are happening. Uh, you would be uh, right to use one or the other or both or none. Yes, you'd be right to use the J.C. Wells and uh, modern phonologists' way of doing it to say, you know it's happening. Do I have to write the diacritic? Right. And so the, the, um, the practice of saying, this is a diphthong, hello, remember, diphthong, flashing lights um, we at, at a certain point of familiarity with English phonetics that we sort of go well, I know it's a diphthong you don't have to hit me over the head with it. Uh, it I sometimes say well if there's something some new information that like for instance your your person who had the word air and the second element was so long um, there was some new information that she wanted to tell us about the length, but she didn't want us to get the wrong idea that the it was no longer the tail. So and she was telling us non-syllabic as a way of saying, yes, it's long, um, and that's a, a point. I, I might have added a length mark or a, a, you know, a mid, mid to long, uh, the single or a triangle. strongly articulated right. uh, diacritic. So this kind of obsession, this really marks a fundamental difference in the way we think about phonetics. Either the phonetics is there to show that there is an IPA in the sky and to say, we always do this, this is the rule, or it's an artistic system of communicating in shorthand the paragraph about articulation that we want the person to discover. And we'll use or not use diacritics based on our audience, 
but also based on the level of detailed information that we want them to be focused on. Right, because it's both, right? It's both. Yeah. It's not just one or the other. And so frequently, people get caught into reading things where it's supposed to be an impressionistic thing or it's a phonemic thing, and it, they, they're looking at it trying to make it a detailed, narrow transcription when really it's a broad one. Yeah. And so in, in many ways, um, I think... I hunger for a time when people are able to read broad transcriptions with the sort of openness that that gives well, and, and a sort of forgiving nature, an understanding that broad is appropriate in this context. In this context, narrow is appropriate. And sometimes we need to flip back and forth, which is why we use square brackets and slashes. I would say that uh, <clears throat> certain conversations on Vastavox mm -hmm. go into great detail using symbols from the extended IPA and just being crazy detailed. And if we're talking about something else other than that level of detail, they are inappropriate. Right. But if we're trying to have a conversation about the subtle variations and how this or that person pronounces it, then they are appropriate. They're just not appropriate to then port back into your authoritative... Uh, teaching of students right. to say we always transcribe our face with these diacritics on it that's not what that's for very often what we're trying to communicate is a basic correspondence between the phoneme and a particular kind of pronunciation it will be as broad and or as narrow as is useful for the student right i guess but the the, the a little alarm bell that's going off in my head is when you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to teach this, what the, the my, my warning system is going off, I could see a student misinterpreting that as this is right and other ways yes. are somehow wrong. And but you couldn't possibly conceive of one of my students getting that impression <laughs> because I'm so neurotically ambivalent in everything I say. That, yes, uh, I, I think we're both that way. Yeah, but I'm sure your students say this to you. I uh, frequently get this. Okay, great. But what's the answer? What's the answer? Yes, tell me. Well, I, I don't know. I think I do shift modes. When I'm, when I'm talking to you on glossonomy, I'm very, you know, oh, so, you know, everything's... But when I'm in class, I'm pretty dictatorial. <laughs> so <laughs> Because you have a schedule to meet. Uh, yeah, we got to get through this stuff. Um, and... Uh, in a way, I also know that I need to give people a tool that they can use. And if I give yeah. them too much information, if I go to the glossonomia level of information, I'm going to create a bunch of confusion that I don't have the time to ultimately resolve. I was recently given the occasion to read a, a tenure file. Uh, and that's vague enough that I can quote... Uh, uh, a comment constructively disorienting uh, it's a, something that you could say about scholarship that might be a very useful thing to be constructively disoriented and I think that there are times in the study of phonetics when students ought to be constructively disoriented yes but we do have to get it back together and say Remember the following seven points and move forward. But if in our 
transit towards that condensation, we end up basically teaching students nothing but that their way of doing things is wrong, then we haven't really advanced their knowledge forward. I abjure the rabbit hole. Let us now return. We've got the phonetics part of it covered, right? I think so. Um, though, I do want to say one thing, and that is that there are phonologists, particularly American phonologists, and dialectologists, they sometimes call themselves, who do things like represent A as lowercase e, yod, or j. Yeah. And uh, again, um, this, this came up on Vastavox this week, uh, the reason why they do that is not to say that the second element is yod, but that the second element rises in the direction of yod, and that the realization of that second element is more tense, more closed, so that they're arguing against your relaxation model heading towards the yeah. center. Um, but that that uh, the realizations of a, 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 depending on context, depending on dialect, depending on accent, um, that uh, all the possibilities between a and y are They're included possible. in the phoneme. Exactly. And you and I, if we wanted to be very detailed about exactly which one of those, might use diacritics to talk about the raising of that second element or the retraction of that second element, and, and that's all what we're about to talk about. Yes. So, so I mean, that, that's a phonological thing as opposed to us who are being phonetic. So let's let's get into phonetics. So first of all, I want to play around with changing the... the location of the nucleus. I'm going to start it as high as I can do it. Fees. Fees. I could, and I've certainly heard this, fees being realized so it merges with fleets almost. Right. Fees. Get out of my fees. Then, where the symbol usually is, face, that's the one that Wells says is RP in general American. Then we have face which may be what Paul's referring to as an American one, and certainly in Southern California. I feel like I'm moving down the coast with this. <laughs> face, face, face. There is some sort of face. like opening there, maybe some retraction. Uh, then I could imagine a much backer, face. Uh, get out my face. Face. Which is quite open and face. back. I don't hear back. I'm not hearing the back. Face. Face. Yeah. The problem is that as we go down, yeah, we go you're back. Right. right? That that's why exactly. it looks so like the doing... thing that the Jawas drive around. Right? So the, we're arcing we're we're uh, vectoring backwards because we're going down the vulture. Right. Alright, so let me see if I can do these in order. Face, face, face. Face, 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 face. I can't go much further back than face, right? Yeah. You can't go to face. Yeah, exactly. Um, do me a fiver and lend me a fiver. Fiver. The reason that I might perceive F-A-V-O-R as fiver is because it's overlapping with the territory of another phoneme for me and I'm playing a little phonemic trick on myself. So you'll see sometimes 
like uh, Shaw writing F-O-I-S for voice. Uh, I'm not sure if he actually goes that far, but really quite remarkably back. I, I think you'd be more likely to hear that on on the Foiva that the yeah. not the favor the fiver uh, would go to the oi Foiva. And so what we'll often see is face spelled F I C E, so that it's going into the price diphthong Fice. Fice. Right. All right. Terrific. I do want to deal with the second element in terms of where it can go. Probably when I said fees, I was moving more monothongally, but I was also raising that second element. Face. Face. And I could have a lower front element. Face. Face. But still raise quite high on that second element. Yes. Face. 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 Uh, I could. Face. Face make a more central second element, face, face. But it's hard, I'm hard pressed to do that without going to a monothong. I've certainly heard when I've listened to sound samples, and there's something funny about that face, and I've slowed it down, I've heard the second element being more like an eh, face. But really, then we're getting close to a full merger into a monothongal face. Now, dealing with the monothong, face, face, get out of my face. You could have quite a tight monothong, face, face. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, there's another diphthong floating around there that I'm avoiding. You could have a more face, face. But I can't imagine a very open monothongal face. Because it just starts to intrude on the dress territory, it doesn't does. it? All right, monothongal, second element. Now let's deal with rising diphthong realizations in which we've shifted, in a sense. So my A has raised so much that it's become phi. Right. And then my I, in counterdistinction to that, has become an A, so I can get phius. Phius. Exactly. And... My grandfather's from Northern Ireland, and so I heard that one quite a bit. Fies. Fies. I'm stepping away from the computer to grab a terrific book, so I probably should repeat that because I'm recording my, my voice here, so I apologize for that. It'll make it more homey that I have bad <laughs> microphone technique. So just I want to go back to what you were saying, that face starts to sound like fierce because we're yes. getting fies and fies that seeming fairly similar. Exactly. So a diphthong we haven't encountered yet, the uh, near diphthong, can be phonetically very similar to this version, this rising diphthong version of fierce. Right. So we'll just we'll quickly put a little indent here, a little bracket, parenthetical thought, that these diphthongs that fall towards the middle uh, we call them centering diphthongs. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil just mentioned that, a centering diphthong. Where So we have uh, things like ear and air and ur and or. Typically in North America, we hear that with some roticity on the end of it. Ear, air, or. Uh, but uh, th those are typically called centering diphthongs. So back to our regular scheduled recording. So I have a book here that 
if if only this were a video uh, podcast, uh, I would be able to share the beauty of this book. Uh, it's called Phonological Atlas of the Northern Region, that is the Northern Region of England, not including Scotland, by Edvard Kolb. Uh, it has beautiful maps, which I will show to Eric so we can get a little ooh and ah. Lovely maps. Ooh, ah. And even multicolored maps, so there's red ink on some of them. And How old is that book? Uh, that, I believe, was published in 1966. Ooh. So it's a little bit younger than me. Uh, there, there are little symbols, like little semaphore flags, placed in various locations where they recorded these different pronunciations. So for the word spade, here are the pronunciations. In the north, we get speed, speed. Speed. In the northwest, actually a little further south and in a band across, it looks like pretty much uh, south of uh, south of Liverpool. Yeah. So spad, spad, which sounds really peculiar to me, but that's what the phonetic symbol seems to say. Uh, further east and north, we get spied, which they use a yod there, a, a, an approximate spied. Uh, then we get, and we're moving further south now, spad and spad. Spad. Which sounds crazy to me. Uh, spad, spad, which as we said is the centering diphthong, air. Then these poor little symbols over on the Isle of Man, spade, exactly the way you and I say it. Uh, then in the, there's a southern band which has both spade as a monophthong and spade as an epsilon as a monophthong. And there's a page for Gable and Gate. It's just a yummy book. Whether we should trust it as authoritative, I don't know. Um, mm. the, the apparently Swiss gentleman who put it together uh, was using his best ear to transcribe it. But it is fascinating to hear, at least recorded in print, the notion of a completely opening speed even spiad, which, mm. if I heard that, I would be astounded, but that simply indicates perhaps my lack of knowledge about the details of the dialects of England. Right. And that second element, though, would still be non-syllabic, would it not? Yes, well, that they're not using any marks of syllabification here, so I don't know whether he's saying that it's spiad, or spiad. 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 Uh, you know, you think the word S-P-A-D-E, spade, and the word S-P-A-R-E-D, spared, in a non-rhotic accent, spad. Spad, yeah. Those could overlap. Yeah. Uh, we were going to dig the field, but we were spad the spad. Yeah. I suppose that's possible. I suppose. It, yeah. Whether they merge like that, or perhaps uh, spared would go somewhere else. Yeah, spared. There is, 
a version of this that I think I referred to, which doesn't go to that second element very much, which is fierce, fierce. There's a tiny little relaxation and falling towards the center at the end, but it's almost predominantly E, fleets, fierce, fierce. And that's the one I personally associate with my grandfather's Northern Irish accent, although I, I may be getting that wrong. Right. Uh, it's interesting, and we'll deal with this when we deal with square, uh, the way a person who has a fierce and a square has to keep those then more distinct and do a different strategy to keep them distinct. For me, face and square are almost entirely distinguished by the direction of the vector of their second element. Yeah. The first elements are pretty close square face air a but my second elements are so different yes that i don't need to worry about that. yes um yeah and i mean when we get into talking about square we'll we'll be dif differentiating some square squares from others because there are yeah. some that are more at least historically speaking more air and mm -hmm. others that are more air so uh that split is uh something that that's very interesting and sometimes when you're working on the square lexical set some people will transcribe it thinking of it as face plus r in the same way that flower is ow plus the r color yes. uh, schwa air the schwa which either indicates that there is a parabolic vector fair fair square or that they're just thinking phonologically that that A represents the higher beginning point of square. Yeah, so I mean, a word like fair, uh, I could see somebody having a dictionary form in their head that's sort of fair, uh, yeah. and that kind of slightly broken pronunciation uh, in the same way that we might have uh, fire, fair. Um, and, it, you know, I'm hearing echoes of some forms of southern accents um, in there. I have a couple of directions I want to go here. One of them is I was just reminded of uh, when I was growing up in Iowa, the civic leader who was in charge of the entire city was the mayor. Right. Uh, a female which horse. Takes, yes, exactly. Which takes that diphthong situation or two-syllable situ situation of mayor and smooths it mm -hmm. to mayor. Man. Uh, the mayor was square. Uh, and so there, that certainly is one realization of the A sound in that triphthongy place, that it's been moved by the presence of the second element. So you might talk to the mayor in May. And so mare is actually more open in its first element than may. Right. I'm getting more towards Chicago now, and so I'm not trying to suggest that Iowans would say me. Mare. There's also uh, the thing that happens in the upper Midwest. Uh, whenever I enter a new city, uh, my first job is to go find local beer. And so I will often go to... Uh, 
a shop and buy a six pack of something. And so I was in Minnesota recently and I was asked, do you want to bag with that? Hmm. And I was, uh, I know all about this and yet I could not understand what she said because the word bag was so close to my realization of big, of bagel, uh, that it had merged. Right. It threw off my perception. Now, there's another thing that happens with people in this region, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Great Lakes, where the word bagel, and we've had this conversation before, shifts over into bagel. And you had suggested that it was a matter of people not ever having met a bagel before, I think. Yep. And I think that's a reasonable thing. But I, I have counter evidence uh -oh. from one of my current students. One of my current students who I'm just going to guess doesn't listen to the show. If so, I apologize. I'm not going to use your name. Uh, he's been running into a problem in the show that he's in, in that he has the word V-A-G-U-E, vague, and the director has said, stop that, you're saying vag. Hmm. Uh, and he, he's a smart guy, but when talking about this, he suddenly gets a dumb look on his face. Because what he's doing is, I don't get what, I don't hear what you're hearing. Now, he's moved beyond that now to having identified the difference and shifted it and simply having a moment of going, here we go, right before he hits the word, since he says the word vague a few times. But as I understand it, I wasn't in the rehearsal hall, but hearing from him, he was saying, vague, I have a vague feeling. Mm. Fully realized as ah. So, and he would probably, although he doesn't say this, he probably grew up saying vague. So you could imagine an utterance in which the same speaker says, I have a vague feeling that that's not the right vague. Hmm. And that violates my intuitions like crazy. That doesn't seem like the sort of thing that would happen. I, I have a similar situation with that word, uh, though it doesn't go quite as far. I have a number of students with the word vague and also the word plague, uh, that it gets articulated as plague and vague. Um, with an epsilon um, and uh, so certainly there is instances of a closing of words like egg in certain places uh, Ottawa Valley for instance in a part of Ontario Eastern Ontario that comes right down into the Midwest as well where egg goes to egg um, yeah. so that's a closure here we're taking an egg sound and opening it to an egg sound so going the opposite way yeah there seems to have been a switcheroo and for those students who say plague or veg i i find it almost impossible to get them to say a um and it's mapped onto the same lexical set as egg like it rhymes veg rhymes with egg plague and rhymes with egg Pre-velar raising is the fancy term, yeah? The, yes. It's that g, and probably the n, probably you'd hear people saying hang instead mm. of hang as right. well. Hang. So, the step one is the pre-velar raising, where a words 
because you're heading towards the g, a, egg, it, the e goes along for the ride in the closing activity, which is the velar consonant. But then we have a couple that have jumped ship, vague and plague. Why have they jumped ship? Is it a hypercorrection? Is, is it, it that the initial consonant? That are if the if egg if egg maps onto egg, then egg has to go somewhere. Uh, like vague and plague, so it drops down into the egg place that is now vacated. So it's the necessity of keeping a egg distinction. and plague distinct. But why do egg. I have to keep egg? Why can't I say egg and plague or egg and plague? I'm not confusing the words. If, if in your mind the distinction between egg and plague, or in, you know, in the same way that I would never say egg and plague the same, they if, have to be in different lexical sets. They have to be in different. They need more. They need their own turf. Their spelling demands it. And every time you ah, their spelling. Also, every time you hear somebody pronounce those two words, they are pronounced differently, even if you're not quite sure how they're different. See, what I find myself thinking is the youth of Wisconsin uh, are hearing these tokens and they know there's something up and they're making an accommodation. They just cross the wires. And then the minute you hear somebody else say plague or vag, then that's a reinforcement of the pattern that you used. There's enough noise in the signal that it's possible for each individual to actually pick any configuration. Right. I don't know if that's the way language change works, though. We'll have to get William Lebov to explain that to us. Um, I, I, I want to go back to your person and ask whether his dress is, is being lowered uh, <laughs> uh, so that he's saying dress. Uh, I don't think so. Because if if he was like my students who are saying vag, that vag is coming because they're saying dress as well, that it, that it's mapped onto the same place as dress for my students, but those dresses are very low; they're maxi skirts. I have plenty of students who do lower their dresses, but they tend to be. But you more... keep the door to your office open while they do that. I do. I follow all university policies on that and all other subjects, Eric. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's fascinating. I don't think we'll have an answer to this, but there's an interesting dance going on in the magnetic attraction and repulsion of these word categories. Mm -hmm. I have one more thing, one more face to make. Okay. And, and that is... Uh, you mentioned earlier that there's uh, an ongoing process in London speech of opening fights. Nice. That it's a feature of estuary to go more towards the Cockney face than towards the old RP face. However, uh, Multicultural London English, MLE, reverses that tendency. Mm -hmm. It goes back to fates. Face. Maybe even moving towards a monophthong, but that's not what I saw in the research that I looked at. So, if you want to talk like a cockney, you'd say face, but 
in my end, we say face. Uh, so that, and I can't really get my fingers around multicultural London English yet to really do it, but Ali G is a sort of like caricature of, of that. Uh, there's a great uh, lecture that J.C. Wells links to mm -hmm. uh, the TED Talks in the East End. Did you happen to see that? I did see it, yes. And, he, uh, he, and I'm, rem I'm blanking on his name. Do you remember his name? Erskine Eskil Erg. <laughs> oh, here, here, you talk and I'll look him up. Yeah. Crepe. Jesus, I don't know. Uh, so, yes, that uh, in this new London accent, which we could refer to as multicultural London English or Emily, there's a sense that uh, they are not Cockney, they're something new. It's a youth accent. Uh, it's often characterized as a black accent or as an immigrant's accent. And one of the things that's discussed in the lecture is how that's not entirely accurate. The other thing that's discussed in the lecture is a statement made by a historian, which really has some... <clears throat> he was justifiably attacked for having made this assumption that the riots in London were a result of black language and black culture infecting the white language and white culture leading to bad behavior. Uh, I don't think I have to deconstruct that for you or for our listeners. Uh, it's certainly telling about the way people think about certainly race, power, and class, uh, but also the way they see language as mapped onto that. Uh, so for a, a person living in London, who's aware at all, they can tell whether somebody's a Cockney or whether they're more multicultural London issue, uh, multicultural London English. Uh, there are certainly Cockney features, like the, the use of in it, even when you're not referring to a specific it. Uh, so you, you would say, it's very sunny today, in it. That makes sense. That's the older form. <coughs> but you'd also say, I told him, in it. So it's a generalized uh, amplification. Uh, it's like, we? Oui? It's, uh, you know, requesting affirmation. Yeah. But I'm off topic. Did you happen to find the. I did. His name is Paul Kerswill. Kerswill. And the event was TEDx East End. Um, and There's another feature about this lecture which makes it really interesting to watch. He's a mild stutterer as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, and the way he negotiates with that is really interesting. Uh, the idea of a linguist who stutters is also really interesting, uh, and I'd love to hear him talk about it. Uh, but it's a terrific lecture and lays out the questions really thoughtfully, I think. Yes, I, I, it's uh, the... Uh blog post that John Wells uh, included in was uh, called Duke of York Sound Changes, and his Duke of York was the good, grand old Duke of York who marches men to the top of the hill and marches them down again. Um, the idea of uh, a sound change changing to one thing and then changing right back to what it was. And 
in a way, I, I kind of think of London multicultural English as actually not taking the same group of men back down the hill. Um, that that uh, the demographics of London, the shift of the population of who lives in those inner city communities, they're, they're not generally the same people. Uh, they're the, not the same cultural group. They may be disenfranchised, they may, may be uh, economically disadvantaged, but uh, they are often culturally from radically different backgrounds. And so that geography has got a different sound, partly because it's got a different group of people living there. I'm going to demur. Uh, no, I'm not going to demur. I'm going to disagree. Uh, the, the, there was a slide that Kurzweil put up showing the percentages of white English uh people whose families had been in England, and it was 40% in one area and 88% in another area, which seems to me... 80% uh, of, of white. whites. So a plurality, at least, if not a clear majority, uh, that contradicts what you were just saying, that it's a culturally... Uh, I'm not necess necessarily saying uh, white, white or black or... or um, but not necessarily the children of the people who, of the previous generation of that yeah. geographical spot. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of movement within uh, London into different neighborhoods and That's from, absolutely true. from different parts of the country coming into London, different parts of the former British Empire. is the very process that led to the development of Cockney in the first place. Exactly. So uh, that... Uh, this uh, this geographical place continues to be a kind of a uh, um, oh what do you call those things with the mortar and pestle a mortar I guess a melting or, pot uh, yes a melting pot what 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 would you put metals into to melt them crucible crucible there we go oh, that would make a great play no, no it would never work um, anyway uh, so the this idea of uh, uh, you know London being the place where people come together and, and make a new accent every hundred years or so. That that might be an interesting thesis that uh, we'll see when yes. we're angels looking down on... <laughs> now, I have to confess, I have one more tiny little thing. I For some reason, I've been collecting agenda items for this, which is what's making it a very long podcast, I apologize. Uh, there is a thing that Raymond Hickey, the Irish linguist, refers to as stress attraction. Mm. Uh, which is a tendency to lengthen and make prominent, to stress, syllables later in the word. So education will get lengthened in an Irish accent, uh, examination, uh, which is something that happens in Germans speaking English, it happens in Trinidad, and it happens in Ireland, and so you'll sometimes get a face lengthening in a multisyllabic word later in the word. Uh, and Asian is a, the way you find a word like that. So that's, uh, I'm trying to think of another example that isn't that kind of ending. You've got a lot of explaining to do. That might work because it's at least not the first syllable. So he calls it stress attraction, which I think, I always joke that that's, uh, uh, Glenn Close sequel. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
the stress is attracted to the end of the word, whereas it okay. might more commonly in other Englishes be towards the front of the word. But what I'm really perceiving is a tendency to lengthen a in these multisyllabic words. I have a student working on Trinidadian, and that's a feature that I'm hearing in a lot of the samples right now. A tendency to really make those sounds and even make one of these rising diphthongs that we've been talking about. But my education it gets really lengthened kind of dramatically. So that's one last face to turn over. Have we spoken our fill? I, th I think we have. The, the only thing, Phil, that we haven't uh, fulfilled or, or talked about that is kind of a setup for a further CC. podcast is the relationship of face to goat. <laughs> if you get the relationship of face to goat right, then you can really sing goat songs. Yeah. Mm. That uh, face and goat are parallel... Uh, within the vowel chart, and yeah. that uh, many of the features of face transfer over to goat. So there are diphthong and monophthong versions of face. There are diphthong and monophthong versions of goat. So we get goat and goat. Um, and often in the same accent, the, they'll both behave the same way. Yes. So, so a monophthongal face and a monophthongal goat would go together. And so the, this parallel structure, I think w when we get around to talking about goats, uh, we, will, we will be coming back to stuff we've talked about here in the face yes. episode. They're, they're, the thing we talked about, about the merger of these two different categories of face in the history of English, happens also in two different categories of goat, and that's what J.C. Wells calls the long mid-merger. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yes, yes long mid-mergers. So, historically, you would have had two kinds of face and two kinds of goat, and both of them merged together into a diphthongal face and goat. I did those monophthongally. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it happens towards the end of the episode that we can no longer pronounce anything, so... So we can look forward to that. Goat will be our next diphthong. Yes. Uh, but we'll do a consonant in between. I believe that is our intent. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to pull up our episode plan. Oh, you know what we said? We said that our next episode would be goat. That we'll go, we'll go straight to goat. Let's do it. Because after goat, we have to do consonant R. Yes, and we need to rest up a little bit more before Brace we ourselves. <laughs> Brace ourselves for our... We'll have to use that joke later. Eric, it has been, as always, a delight to have you here in the Glossonomia Festival House. <laughs> and I hope we'll be able to do it again very, very soon. Do you have any closing comments for us? Uh, I don't. I want to remind people again that... Glossonomia at gmail.com is the way to reach us, and we invite your comments. If we haven't invited your comments by this point... I believe we've uh, demanded their comments. Which I, I think, and we've stumbled enough and said silly enough things that oh, yeah. I'm sure there'll be feedback. 
And sometime we're going to manage to get poor old Eric Singer's mother onto the show. Yes. Um, I, I haven't figured out how we're going to do that, but we must. Some follow-up. Maybe we, we just to need to do to an episode of follow-up. And, and that would be a way of delaying. Excellent. Doing R. Sir, a pleasure. A pleasure, as always. Until Adios. next time. Until next time. Bye. Bye.